while that happens, uh, we are going to be uh, getting close to wrapping up our sermon series on Colossians. And so some of you have been with us all throughout this series. It started back mid-summer. We've been slowly working our way through the book of Colossians. And I don't know about you, but uh, I've really enjoyed learning a few new things that I don't remember if I'd ever really heard before. So for example, I never really paid much attention to the city of Colossa. Uh, and I learned this time around that it was kind of a, a forgotten backwater type town. It had had its best days and its past. And so when Paul was writing to this little itty bitty town, it was quite an honor. Also learned that the church that was there was one of the few that Paul wrote to that he actually didn't ever even visit. He hadn't planted the church, and as far as we know, he had never actually been there, but it was started by one of his disciples, one of the people he raised up who went and started the church there. Also learned uh, that this letter, Colossians, was probably carried to that city at the same time as the letter was sent to Ephesus and Philemon, a personal letter, the smallest and last of Paul's epistles in our New Testament, uh, which was sent to Colossa as well because Philemon was a resident there. So interesting little historical background. Also, one last thing, I never really realized how well-developed the theology of Christ and his divinity is in this letter. And that's been a theme we've seen all throughout. So if you've been with us the last several weeks, here's what we've covered. We've started out through Colossians chapter 1 and 2, and we've seen things like uh, the, the fullness of life in Christ, our sufficiency in Christ. And now we're going to try to start to bring it home with the last part of chapter 3, and then next weekend we'll finish it out uh, with how God calls us to live out our faith and bring it into the lives of others as well. So today... And as maybe you've picked up, uh, we've started to focus in on what does God have to say about our life in the family relationships that we have. And what we're going to see is that family is close to the heart of God, and He has some very specific hopes and dreams for what you will experience in your family, whatever the shape and size and condition it is. So just to be clear from the outset, when we say family, it could be a family of one or it could be a family of 21. Right, could be someone who's called to be single, either by choice or by circumstance, or it could be called to be a large extended family. So all of that is included in what we're talking about today. So as a little bit of background to kind of lay a foundation for what we experience, let me kind of show you a few statistics about families in the United States today. Right, this statistic is uh, from a website called Statista, uh, and it just grabs stuff from the uh, government census data. And it shows the rapid increase in the number of households in the United States. So from 1960, when this campus was first started, St. Peter was already 100 years old as a congregation and a school by then, but they moved to this campus in 1960. From then until now, the number of households in the United States have gone from 52, something like that, 53 million, up to over 120 million, right? So massive increase in population and in households. But what's interesting is at the same time that the number of households was increasing, the number of people in a household was plummeting. Now, uh, the graph, the numbers are too small for you to see, but what this shows you is that back in 1960, on average, there was like 3.33 individuals per household, and now that's dropped to about 2.5. And a household is defined as all the persons occupying a housing unit as their usual place of residence. 
So it's interesting is, again, around Arlington Heights, if you drive out from church today uh, or wherever you are, if you're joining us from home, if you drive around your neighborhood, odds are you'll see a lot of houses being built that are way bigger than the houses from the 60s and 70s. Okay? So the houses from the 60s and 70s were great, uh, but they're a lot smaller. And interestingly, even though our houses are bigger now, on average, the people living in them are fewer and fewer. Now, I've seen this in my own time in ministry here uh, as families are getting married later. When I started here 15 years ago, odds are you're in your mid to late 20s. Now you're in your young to mid 30s when you're getting married for the first time. Families are having fewer children as well. And that's part of the next statistic as well. The average, not just number of people living in the house, but number of people per family has seen a similar decline from 3.67 down to about 3.13. Now, what that tells you is that those who are getting married tend to have children later and they have fewer of them. And this has played out actually in my own personal life as well. Some of you know I come from a very large family. My dad and mom had three brothers, or sorry, I have three brothers and three sisters. So my parents had seven kids and my dad was married once before. And so he had another son and daughter from that. So I'm one of nine children in my immediate family. And whenever we have a family reunion, it's like, it's like a whole tribe of humans, right? There are kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And there's like 50 or more people if we were ever to be in one place at one time, which is hard to pull off. But in our family, Sarah and I felt complete with just two. So we have Ava and Drew. So went from a family of seven or nine, depending on how you're counting, down to two. And that's not bad, right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with a smaller family. It's just different than maybe some of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and the number of children they had in their families. It's interesting to notice these changes in what family experiences are like. And that's the first point I'd want to make. Families, as we have experienced it, are changing. Just the number of family, number of kids in the family, uh, the way that they live, how long they stay in one place, how much they move, all of that has shifted dramatically in the last few decades. What's also true is families are under immense pressure, right? So if you have children, if you have grandchildren, you know the pressure of keeping up the schedule of all the activities at school and after school, sports and clubs. And if your kids are getting older, you know the pressure to get them into high school and get their grades up into the right place because hopefully then they'll be able to get to college or go to some vocational school and start a career. And it's almost like it seems like the young, uh, my experience as a young guy and the easy summers we used to have are They just don't exist anymore. You just got to go, go, go. And then on top of that, you have social media, you have digital media, you have access to all these things. And so parenting now, as opposed to 20, 30 years ago, at least I like to think, is a lot harder than it once was. There's immense pressure that every family is facing. But here's something else I also know to be true. Families are still God's best idea and his plan for human flourishing. God's desire and his dream is that every family would experience the fullness of his grace, power, and his mercy, and in that way become a place where hope and healing and life are found in abundance. Now, why would I say that? Uh, Let's take a look uh, at this passage. It's from uh, Mark chapter 10. And Jesus was asked on one occasion uh, what he thinks about families and if it's ever okay for people to get divorced, okay? And here's how he answers. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is Genesis 1.27. And then he adds another quote from Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds his own divinely inspired interpretation of that. He says, therefore, they are no longer two but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So what Jesus is saying here is that marriage and family are absolutely essential to the human condition. They're part of God's design for every relationship, and his desire is also that they might be a place of blessing and life. Now, one quick aside, I mentioned that Jesus answers the question, should anyone ever get divorced? And his answer to that was to point them back to God's original plan. But he also adds, it's not in this quote, that God also gave a way for marriage to end in divorce in a way that caused the least amount of harm. He says, Moses told you this is how you're supposed to do it. And it was because he knew that relationships would always be hard. Okay? And I said before, my father and uh, mother have seven kids and my dad has two more. Well, that tells you my dad was married once before. And so my own family has experienced divorce and remarriage. And what I can tell you is that God can work tremendous hope and healing even in a second marriage or a third marriage. Uh, but it is a challenge and it is not easy. So God's desire is that all of us would exist within a family context where there would be his favor and his blessing and his provision for protection and for the well-being of everyone in the family. Now, what is also true is that uh, families are often a battleground where Satan loves to attack. And maybe for some of you, when you think of family, right, you think of fights, you think of uh, hard times, you think of abuse, or neglect, and maybe you have experienced just the pain that can come from a broken family. Right Now, here's the reality. There's no perfect family out there. There's not a single family on the planet that has everything sorted out and organized. So all those famous families we thought of, you probably know all too well that a lot of them had a bunch of uh, shadow sides and a bunch of broken places. And the reality is, is every family is broken. Every marriage is broken because you have broken people in it. But the good news is, is that it's in that brokenness, in the fire we talked about in that last song, that God loves to show up and bring hope and healing and give us what we need to experience the fullness of life now and the hope of eternal life to come. Right, so we should expect that Satan would be pressing in hard, seeking to divide and discourage and destroy the relationships we have with our children and our spouses and our extended family. And so maybe for some of you, there are some kids or grandkids that you can't talk to anymore, right? They've just been shut off for you. Or maybe there isn't a spouse that you're estranged from. Or maybe there's a cousin that you just, you just can't get along with, can't stand. You can think of the brokenness that is already there, right? I just want to just name and recognize that family relationships can be hard. But God's desire is that within them, we might experience the fullness of what he has to bring. So with that in mind, Lynn, I want to turn our attention back to our text for today, and we're going to see what Paul gives in terms of practical advice and instruction for how we're to live out our life in community in these family relationships. 
right? Now, one thing I want to note uh, as we turn the corner here is that in most of Paul's letters, not all of them, but in most of Paul's letters, he starts out by laying a solid theological foundation in the first couple chapters. And then the last few chapters, he brings it home in terms of what does this mean then for our everyday life? So in, in Colossians chapters one and two, strong theological foundation, turn the corner chapter three, he says, okay, here's how you're supposed to live this out. He does the same thing in Ephesians, so you can look at Ephesians 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6 follows a similar pattern, and we're going to see a lot of the same themes as we look through our text for today. So in chapter 3, Paul says, all right, I've just talked to you at all about how God is uh, fully present with us in Jesus Christ, and he has come that we might have life in fullness and abundance. Now, since you know that that's true, since you have been brought into the family of faith by baptism, since you've been claimed as God's children, what does that mean then in terms of how you should live out your life? So in verse 1 he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. That is to say, don't settle for the best that this world has to offer, uh, but instead seek God's will and God's best, which is found in God's word. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And then a little later on in verse 12 and 14, Paul says, here's then what that looks like. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then he lists a bunch of different virtues, and he ends with this one. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So just think, for example, whatever shape your family is, and it might be a family of one, if God's called you to singleness, just like the Apostle Paul, he says, I wish everyone were like I am, because I can devote my full energy towards the ministry and towards others. Some of you today are a family of one. Some of you are, are more than that. Whatever shape your family is in, what would it be like if your family, more than anything else, was known for perfect harmony? Wouldn't that be amazing, right? When you get together with your siblings or your grandchildren, and it was just a place filled with love and peace and joy, and everyone delighted in each other, just can imagine how awesome that would be. And then just think for a moment, if that were true of every family in this room and you were to go out and rub shoulders with other families and you're like, man, you guys are just nice to each other all the time, right? You're patient with each other. Your kids listen to mom and dad and actually do what they say. Like, uh, where does this come from? Paul says, here's where it starts, okay? If you're seeking the things that are above, if you're putting on these virtues, including love, it will lead to, over time, with God's help, through the power of the Spirit, uh, perfect harmony. So if that's even something maybe remotely desirable for you, just kind of lean in, and he's going to explain then how that plays out in the unique dynamics of husbands and wives, parents and children. Okay? So that's the framework to lead up to this. Okay? We heard it read just a moment ago. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, odds are, when you first read this, some of you in the room are like, oh, I don't know if I like that, <laughs> right? So here's what I'm going to do. I was going to start with the easy part first, and then I'm going to go back and, and finish up the hard part, right? We're going to focus from this reading just on the family dynamics of parents and children, husbands and wives. So, so children, obey your parents in everything. Moms and dads in the room, don't you just love this Bible verse? Don't you just want to put that on the wall at home and be like, look, God said it, right? You have to do everything I say, right? Which is kind of true. Okay. What, is, what is Paul trying to get at here as he's instructing children? Let's jump over to Ephesians 6, and you'll see this in a little fuller form. Here Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
And then he goes back to the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, and he, and he quotes from there, honor your father and mother, and then adds his own little note. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Parents, the easy route, which would be kind of settling, would be to just assume that your kids have to do every last thing that you say because like, you're in control of them. And sometimes that would be the easier way to parent. It's just do what I say, don't question it, don't push back, just do it, right? Um, the hard part is that sometimes we parent out of laziness, right? And we don't want to do the harder work of thinking through what's best for our kids, and we just want to do what's convenient in the moment. And sometimes we're correct, but we can be wrong and right at the same time, right? Notice what the promise is that Paul talks about. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Parents, what your job is, and this extends to grandparents, aunts and uncles, and adoptive parents too, your job is to create the best possible environment for your children to thrive to their fullest God-given potential. Your job is to create a space so that they can find out who God has uniquely created and called them to be, and they're to do so in a way that's safe and filled with love and, and nurture. And what that means is you as a parent are called by God to do everything you possibly can to help your children become the best that they could possibly be. And that doesn't mean you just get to have your way every time. Sometimes there's a little tension there, a little give and take, especially as they grow older. Mom's in the room. You know, one point in time, your kids were actually literally inside of you, and then your process of parenting is gradually letting them go and figure out life on their own. So children, any of you with parents, to be clear, God does call you to be obedient and honor your father and mother. And it doesn't give you the chance to say when it's convenient or when you like it. But also understand your parents' calling in this, their obligation is to do everything they possibly can to help you thrive. Now, uh, Paul jumps to fathers next. He does both, he does that both in Colossians and in Ephesians here. So take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Oops, it jumped a little too far forward. Let me go back. My remote sometimes doesn't do what I want. Well, I'm back one more. Uh, give me a second. Yes, yeah, come on, remote. <laughs> there we go. So here's the second part. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. In both Colossians and in Ephesians, Paul speaks to fathers and not mothers. It's not that mothers aren't important, but in the Roman culture to which Paul is writing, the father figure, the pater familius, was, was the most important kind of structurally uh, individual in the family setup. And the father in that culture could get away with just about anything. If he wanted to abuse or neglect uh, his children, he would be able to do that, and there wouldn't be any legal recourse against him. And fathers in the Roman culture were known for just treating their children terribly. So at least part of the reason why Paul is writing to dads first is because he wanted to speak into that uh, inappropriate behavior in his context and culture. Fathers, your, your calling is not to just abuse your children, provoke them to anger, but instead, notice what he calls them to do. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's a theme we're going to see woven throughout the rest of our time in God's Word today. God calls men and fathers specifically, husbands and fathers, to be leaders within their family who model the words and the ways of Jesus to the best of their ability and provide spiritual instruction and authority over the rest of their family. But it's never to be self-serving. It's always to be self 
sacrificing. So fathers, men in the room, uh, you are called to model the faith to the children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews you may have in your life, and to do so in a way that points them back to Jesus so they can grow to be more like him. Now with that in mind, we're ready to jump back to the first part of our passage. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 speak specifically to the husband-wife relationship. And Jason, I'm going to need some help with the slides here because my remote's not working well. Sorry, thank you for that. Uh, so there we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now one thing I want to note, in both of these cases... Uh, what Paul always likes to do is speak first to the one who would normally come second or be overlooked. So with children and fathers, he doesn't go first to the fathers and then the children, but he elevates the children by speaking to them first. The same's true when he's speaking to wives and husbands. You'd normally expect the, the greater in the relationship, you know, socially speaking, societally speaking, to be addressed first, but he upends that and is talking to women first. He says, wives, uh, submit to your husbands, and then brings in husbands next. All throughout Paul's letters and in the Gospels of Jesus, what you will see them doing is always seeking to elevate those who are otherwise marginalized. Those who are overlooked, they try to bring into the spotlight. So think, for example, uh, Jesus, the first people to witness his resurrection are women. They're the first people to give witness to the resurrected Jesus. Whenever possible, Jesus and those who follow him seek to raise up everyone because every man and woman, every girl and boy has equal value, dignity, and worth in the eyes of God. Okay? There is no one who is more important or greater than the other. We have different roles and functions, but all have the same value and dignity. So why then would Paul say, wives, submit to your husbands? Again, let's jump back over to Ephesians, uh, our next slide, where Paul seeks to unpack this a little bit more. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their Lord, to their husbands. Now, uh, when you hear that word submit, that's probably one of those places where you get a little cringy, okay? Um, submit here does not mean anything about greater than, less than, more important, less important. It means to find your proper place in God's plan. There was another word that if Paul wanted to indicate superior and less uh, important, he would have used. It would be hupakuo instead of hupatasso, which means to, to just uh, follow in an almost like enslaved type way. And that's not what Paul has in mind. Instead, he says, wives, uh, your husbands are to be your head that is to be the one who represents Christ in that relationship, and they're to do so in a way that is entirely selfless and self-sacrificing. And as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior, so too your husband shall be to you. And then he spells that out even more clearly in the next verses. So here in the next slide, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's what this means. In a marriage relationship, the husband's job is to treat his wife as if she was the most important person on the planet. No one else matters more to him than her. Not even children matter more than the spouse in a marriage relationship. And so your job, guys, if you are married, is to take so good care of your wife that she knows that you would do anything, even die, 
to protect, provide, and bless her so that she might thrive. So just like Jesus does that for the church, husbands, you're called to do that for your wives. And wives, it would be the most easy and natural thing then if you knew that your husband in every decision was seeking your best and then the rest of your family's best for you to say, yeah, I can go along with it because we're always working together for the ultimate goal of seeing our children thrive for those who are blessed with children. Right, now let's go on a little bit more. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now this is where it gets a little bit weird if you don't understand the context. What Paul is saying here is that there is no difference in value, dignity, and worth between a woman or a man, between a girl and a boy, adults and children. Every single human being matters in the eyes of God and is equal in value, dignity, and worth. So in the same way that you take good care of yourself, uh, take good care of your spouse. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then Paul concludes with this uh, in the next slide. He quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24 again. We saw that in the words of Jesus and then adds this. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you husbands, that's who he's talking to, love his wife and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a little bit easier to accept maybe. Respect is something maybe that we find a little more comfortable in our context in the word submit. But it means the same thing. Seek to put each other first. Seek to love and serve one another. And in, in this way, experience the perfect harmony that Jesus has talked about and that Paul has promised. Now friends, I'm not saying that this is easy. And I'm not saying it comes naturally. It takes work and effort in every family and every context. And yet when we lean into what God is calling us to do, the unique roles that he has called us to, he will promise and he will deliver what he has said, his hope, his peace, and his power for our human flourishing. Amen.